was like, no, you're not going to roll me out. I don't have a baby to put on my lap and all the things. So I grabbed my, my box that they gave me and I walked out. And I remember that I wanted to see the gal who had first put the Doppler on. And I'm not kidding you. They didn't call her. I didn't even tell anyone. And I'm walking down the hall and she is right by triage. And we meet right there in the hall and we just hug. Life is complicated, but getting healthy doesn't need to be. And hello, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Inland Medical Center's Health Matters. This is a monthly podcast that gets real about wellness and we get to check in on ourselves. I'm Susie Larry Hall and I'll be your host. We're going to have some candid conversations on health topics that matter most to you and our loved ones and our family. And the goal is to empower, inspire, and make a difference. We're going to be joined with Inlo experts with real insight and real stories from people just like you and me. And we're going to learn easy steps that we can take to start down the road to wellness. Katie Herman and her husband, Brian, were elated to welcome their new baby into their family in April of 2021. The baby would be the youngest of three and was already loved by so many. Unfortunately, the baby developed a true knot in its umbilical cord and thus died inside of his mother's womb. But Katie and her care team were unaware of this until Wesley, their son, was born. The experience changed their family forever and made them part of a group we don't often hear a lot about. Families who have lost their babies either do a miscarriage or a stillbirth. It's a tragic reality and one that affects about one in every 160 births. In fact, every year, about 24,000 babies in the U.S. are stillborn, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Katie and Brian are here today to share their story and to help our families heal. The expert in the studio is Erin Parizio, a nurse in Inlow's Labor and Delivery Department. So thank you everyone for being here today. Thank you for having this. And it's such an important topic to talk about that people don't discuss. So I think it's really good to get information out. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest here today. So Katie, can we start with you? Tell us a little bit about you. Hi there. I just hit 40 years old this year. Got two children at home and I live in Northern California and I work part-time as a counselor. And your husband, Brian. Hi, Brian. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Don't then, have much more of an introduction than what Katie gave. I pretty much the same details. So, and then Aaron, tell us a little bit about you. My name is Aaron Parizio, and I've been a nurse for 22 years, and I've been primarily in labor and delivery the entire time. I came very passionate about perinatal loss when I experienced my first baby that passed away when I was a brand new nurse, and I never thought of that happening in labor and delivery. So I figured I needed some more education, and we had a group that um, was kind of working at the hospital, but it went away and um, wasn't really active, so there wasn't a lot of training for our staff. So I became kind of the liaison with another social worker, and we started a program. This is a very big part of my job, being able to follow up with these moms and give support as we can. So Erin, I'm going to start with you. Would you please share with us what exactly is stillborn and then what's the difference between a miscarriage and a stillborn birth? So stillborn is the death or loss of a baby during pregnancy. And a difference between a stillborn and miscarriage is a stillborn is any baby that is born over 20 weeks gestation and a baby prior to 20 weeks is considered a miscarriage. With that being said, I mean, we've had babies down in the ER, even on our unit that are 12, 15 babies that are full-form little babies. So 
it's just a technical term with a stillborn and the miscarriages and the different ways that you have to handle and do different things. Katie and Brian, I'd love to just give you the opportunity to share a little bit about your experience and what happened with Wesley. Yeah, so Wesley was going to be our third born child and his due date was Easter Sunday, April 4th of 21. And my 40 week appointment was scheduled to be on that next Tuesday. And mind you, my first was four days late and my second was nine days late. So going late for me was something very common. When I went in on Tuesday, the heartbeat was at 140. So, so healthy baby. And so I went home and just started kind of contracting probably a little bit on Thursday. And for me, it just takes a couple of days for me to, you know, the contractions are about 30 minutes apart, give or take. And Thursday, I remember going to the park and with a friend and she felt, felt baby move. Friday is when I really started just focusing on trying to find feel him move. And I remember having some juice on the couch, but I'm contracting. So it was really hard for me to determine if it's just contractions or if it's him, if it's baby moving. Friday night around nine o'clock, I remember having a migraine and going to bed, not feeling completely well. And around one o'clock, I started searching things on my phone, like migraine, 41 weeks pregnant, and then around seven o'clock in the morning on now Saturday morning, I assert, and I'm full on contracting at this point still, but I'm also cramping a little bit. I searched on my phone, can you still have contractions with a stillborn baby? And I didn't say anything to Brian at the time. I didn't have an appetite that morning. And around 11 o'clock, I decided to call the hospital and they said, well, you can just come and get checked. I said, okay, it's, I probably should. So I went in by myself that that morning, you know, thinking worst case scenario, my stuff's on the bed. He can meet me at the hospital for an emergency C-section. That was my worst case scenario. And backtracking to the migraine, I had also had miscarriages before. And I know with miscarriage loss, or your hormone levels drop and it can spike a migraine and other things as well. But that's, you know, I went in to get him checked and that's when I learned there was no heartbeat. Do you want me to stop there? Mm. Keep going. So I remember, there's a few things I remember from that, that day that I keep close to me. I remember walking across the street, going into the hospital just to get, you know, baby checked. And I remember this, this young dad was walking toward me and he said, good luck in there. I remember walking in and letting them know I was going to get baby checked and they're like, what brings you in? And I said, I, I just need to get baby checked. I haven't felt a lot of movement. So they brought me in right away and it was very quick. You know, the nurse, she put the Doppler on my belly and the minute she did, I knew there was, that there was no baby. And at that moment, I think I started crying. But she said, let me go get a doctor for a second opinion. So the doctor came in, sweet doctor, and they brought the bigger ultrasound machine in right away. And, and there, there was no baby, no heartbeat. And I just remember they also brought an RAN, I think. Mm-hmm. And I remember just holding his wrist and just screaming out, you know, where is my baby? Why is this happening to me? 
it was a very out of body, out of mind experience to not really understand what was happening. At this point, we didn't know two things. We didn't know the gender and we didn't know why or what had happened. I immediately called Brian. I said, they can't find the heartbeat. And then as he was coming in, he, I think he called me again mm -hmm. and, and I said, we lost the baby. So they brought him right in when he got there and started the process of trying to figure out what to do next. Katie, you said when you were researching that night when you were laying in bed and looking up, did you did you already feel like you've said, do migraines, do you still have contractions with stillborn? Do you do you feel like you already kind of knew at that point? Yeah, I did. I feel like I did, but one of those things like you don't want to believe, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Was your pregnancy with Wesley, was it any, how did it compare to your other pregnancies? So it was the same, especially mm. with my second. Yeah. Almost identical. And were your pregnancies with your other girls, right? You have two mm -hmm. girls? Yeah. yeah. How are those? Other than a lot of morning sickness. Yeah. 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 No, they were fine, healthy, little petite babies. Mm -hmm. Our first was born like six pounds. Seven ounces. Seven ounces. <laughs> Bobby and Wesley were both seven pounds, 10 ounces. So you have unspeakable news that you're sharing with your husband. He's there. What were some of the decisions you guys had to make from there? What happened? Yeah, so they had a social worker come in and, and kind of talk us through just what we're processing, even though at that moment, it was, How could we you weren't imagine? really processing yeah. anything. Yeah. It was just shock. So then we had to decide, or at least Katie had to decide when it is that she wanted to be induced because her contractions, I, I'm not sure if it's a stillbirth thing or if it's just the, the shock of it, but she wasn't going to contract on her own anymore. So mm -hmm. it was decided that um, she would have to be induced at that point. But considering we have two girls at home, our oldest at the time was four, we knew that she would be expecting a baby with us not being home for so long. So we made the decision to go home and, and talk to her so that she would at least know mm -hmm. that, hey, mommy and daddy are going to come home. We're not going to have a baby and just talk it through with her about kind of what had happened. We kept it high level, obviously, with a four year old. But so that's what we did. We went home and decided that we would go back in that evening after the kids went to bed and Katie would be induced at that time. So luckily for us, we had a lot of family in town and a lot of family show up when we got home. Mm -hmm. So we had a support system prior to going in. And then, yeah, that night at, at nine, I think we left at nine to go, yeah. to, to, go to the hospital and Katie was admitted at, I think, 9.30 or something like that, so. I think that's really important part you guys just talked about is, I think when you first get that diagnosis, you know, that there is no heartbeat, it's, you can't hear anything else. You can't take anything else in. You, you're just in that state of shock. And we really try to encourage our moms to go home and get the chance to, you know, say their goodbyes and let family know. And I think that's really important. Yeah, it was something that I really felt strongly about just needing to see my girls and figure them out. Make like just see that they're OK. Right. Because there's one thing like I can deal with me but I need to make sure my girls are good and they've gone through pain and sadness, but I know they're going to come out. You know, I, I just needed to see that they were going to sleep peacefully that night. Yeah. 
And I know something too, I would like to add is, you know, when Brian and I were at the hospital, figuring all of this out, you know, his mom and dad were with our girls. So, you know, you think about like the family and the loved ones having to be strong in such a time of just complete shock and sadness that they're also processing. I know my family came in. It's a lot to think about to have your, like your mind go to these places. But you know, when we got home, Emmy met us at the window and she, her and my Bobby had made little, a little stuffy for the baby, you know, not knowing. So we still have it. We still have it in his, his box memories. When you shared with Emmy, who was four, what did she say? Like, what was her understanding at the time? Well, we had come up with a game plan to break the news to her in a way that she would not be scared about it. And so, Mm -hmm. because that was one of the things that we talked to the social worker about, because, you know, if we decided to have kids later on, we didn't want her to be frightened. And then other people having kids and trying to avoid some long-term ramifications from pregnancy with her. So we came up with the story that the baby had gotten sick and, and had, and gone to be with Jesus. That's what we told her. I don't, it's hard to say because in that moment, I don't think she fully understood what was going on. I think she does more now because we talk about it a lot and we talk about Wesley a lot, but I think in that moment, it was just like, it was kind of like an, okay. Mm -hmm. And, and then just moving on, which was, Tough to hear, but it was also good to hear, like Katie said, you know, yeah. just seeing that they're okay. It was scary not knowing what they, how she was going to react. And, you know, our youngest was is two years younger than her, so she was two at the time. That was it, no no effect. But to see that Emmy was okay in that moment, it, it helped things. One of the moms shared with me, um, following up with her, she said it's just so amazing how kids, and her daughter was three, almost turning four, And she said, she just took it. I mean, it was hard and she was hard more to see mommy and daddy so sad and everybody so sad, but she said she would just go anywhere and she'd be like, my mommy's baby died. Like she just was Mm. like, it was, they should go to the store and it would be like, you know, and it would throw people back. And so she said we really had to work on like, like you were saying, like a story and like, let's talk about this because she just shared it with everybody. So how you go in at 930 and if I recall at this time, we didn't know what you were having. Right. Yeah. So, so we walk in at nine thirty, and and it's just like you're going in to deliver any other baby. So it's yeah. I I remember walking in. And I didn't know what to say. I just said my name is Katie. <laughs> That's all that could come to me. And but as I'm there, a nurse is walking up, named Katie, Catherine maybe, <laughs> and just calmly, peacefully took us to the delivery room. Yeah, they were prepared. They knew we were coming in. They knew what we were coming in for. They treated us in a way that was very respectful and honoring of our situation. Yeah. Once we got in the room, just there was so much sadness and tears, but there were some lighthearted moments. You know, I think part of our brains, what I've learned in therapy is that we remember certain things and how we behave in certain ways and manners. Like I've been in that room before and the only other times I've been in that room were to deliver two babies that I joyfully and gratefully brought home. So 
being in this situation again, at times I'm in such a state of shock that it's like I had to remind myself, you know, at times. And that's when it got really sad and really hard. I went through a lot of different medical things, I guess, to to be induced. All the things I never thought I would have to do, like a, a Foley balloon. A lot of, lot of different things, but I did it. And I delivered Sunday the next day in the 10 o'clock hour. You know, I had prayed so hard for just peace and let me just calmly hold this baby. And we had a plan that when I would deliver, they would take the baby over to the side. Cause again, we didn't know what had happened or when it happened or when it happened. Yeah. So they said, it's a boy. The nurse had taken him over to the side to wrap him and the midwife just immediately held up the umbilical cord and it was a tight, true knot, very deflated umbilical cord. But she brought him over to me and I just gladly took him and just looked at him, you know, wanting him to just be sleeping, right, and wake up. But his skin had changed a little bit. His lips were red, really bright red. But I just, I calmly and peacefully just held him and looked at him and said my hellos and then I said my goodbyes. Aaron, what is a true knot? Well, Katie and Brian probably would have the best statistics on this. I'm sure they researched a lot. I think, I think one of the hardest things when we do have a loss is the why. Like Katie said, she mentioned, you know, when they didn't find a heartbeat, like, why? Like, why is this happening to me? Like, why did this happen? And I think that is one of the most challenging things is when we don't have a why and there isn't a reason and you have a perfectly beautiful baby that, you know, you do feel like this baby's just sleeping and you just want to open its eyes. And so when you see a true knot, it's awful, but it's also a good reason because for the parents, there's, that's the reason. But then again, we also see true knots where we have babies that are come out crying and happy and, you know, no problems. So a true knot is when the knot in the umbilical cord, when it actually makes a knot in the umbilical cord and it can happen at an early gestation and the baby does totally fine or it can happen at some point when the baby's able to tie a knot in the cord, move around to get a knot. And, you know, there's the blood circulation that goes from baby to the placenta and placenta back to baby. And so when that knot gets tight, it cuts off that circulation. But you know, we've, we've seen true knots that, you know, we don't have bad outcomes with. So the statistics are one to 2% have an actual true knot, which is, you know, pretty low, thankfully. You guys have done some research on it, Katie. Yeah, we've done some. I saw a statistic that said one in a hundred pregnancies have a knot in the cord and then one in 2000, it is actually fatal. So I'm not sure how accurate that statistic is, but it's, you know, something that is fairly rare. Going back to something that Aaron said and just having an answer for why this happened, you know, when we, something that we were told initially after we found out is that pretty much half the time they don't have an answer of why this happened. Wow, really? Yeah, that's what they told oh us. Oh my God. Yeah, I say more than half. I mean, it's a lot. We don't have a, a reason. Yeah, so it, it is nice having an answer, but it's also not nice having an answer because right. I think it'd be easier, and I'm just saying this, based on my experience and our experience and because we do know, but I think it'd be easier if we had a, a medical reason why, you know, with a true knot, it's an accident. 
it's not necessarily preventable, but you know, if we had, if he had been delivered a week before, he probably would be fine. And so it's little things like that are things that you focus on at times and, and replay in your mind. But it is nice to know, at least we know that there was nothing that we could have done. Because right. I mean, like Katie said, historically we had our girls late and we never would have made the decision to be induced early based on our history. So it's just unfortunate that time is what caused this. So if I understand right, for a true knot, we don't know. There's no symptoms or there's no way of, is there a history, any family history with anything like that? Wow. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I really think it's just a, something that happens in utero and it's a true, you know, like Brian said, it's an actual accident. Like it's, we have babies born all the time with a nuchal cord, which is a cord around the baby's neck. And that can sound really scary. You know, if you see that on ultrasound or you see that, you know, it can, but we have babies born all the time with no problems with that. But if you have a cord that just gets tangled in the wrong spot or, you know, a true knot that cuts off the circulation, it's, you know, a devastating injury and there's nothing you can do about it. And I've read things about it. You know, it's frequent enough, like I said, one in a hundred that there's not a negative outcome to it. So it, there's not enough effort put into to looking at ultrasounds and things like that. Cause it's just, for the most part, it's not a, a something that's risk, the high risk or anything like that. So Right. There's not enough evidence based to say, okay, Katie, we saw this. Let's deliver your baby. I mean. Mm. Right. And also something they told me is it happens so quickly. So at the time that the nutrients are cut off and that true knot really does take place, it could be like 30 minutes. Right. So it's. Yeah, there's not- no way to prevent it. You can't, you can't rush yourself in and mm-hmm. have a C-section or. There's no way to know when, when it's actually tightened enough to cut off circulation. Erin, as we're talking about, you know, loss and families who, as they are losing, you know, they've lost their loved ones, their babies. Can we talk a little bit about miscarriages? I, I, by definition, it sounds like that's anything prior to 20 weeks, Uh but even still for anyone who's been pregnant, you know, that's, that's pretty far along. So how common are miscarriages? Well, in statistics from, you know, ACOG and the OB, the statistics are one out of five to six pregnancies under 20 weeks blend in a miscarriage. And when you hear that, you're like, gosh, that seems so high, like one out of five pregnancies. We didn't know prior to the new technology and pregnancy tests and ultrasounds, and we didn't know you were pregnant. People didn't know they were pregnant until they missed their first period. They might have a heavy period. Well, that could have been a miscarriage. Like, so now people are knowing a lot sooner. You know, you know, you can find out you're pregnant two weeks after conception with the home pregnancy test. So people are finding out they're pregnant a lot sooner. So the sad part, I feel like with miscarriages that people, there's just, there isn't as much, I would say support and, or people don't go to the hospital unless they have like a complication or something. So they don't get resources for help if they need it because they just don't think about it as much. And some people in miscarriage is, you know, one of the most devastating things that's happened to them in their life. Other people, we have these miscarriages handouts that are through um, Resolve Through Sharing, which is a national organization. And we hand them out in our ER or in the offices if we know somebody. And I love it because it just talks about how it's a, it can be a terrible thing, but also it can be people make a big deal about it. Maybe it's not that big a deal to that person, or, you know, maybe it was an unwanted pregnancy. There's just a lot of other emotional factors that can can come in. 
But when you have a loss that's 20 week baby, I mean, there's just, it's a, you know, you see a baby, you actually hold a baby and, you know, they're delivering a baby that they can actually see a formed baby. And it's, it's different, but both, you know, can be traumatic in their own ways, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned to Aaron that when you started working in the ER or in, I'm sorry, labor and delivery, that one of the things that didn't even occur to you that this might be a part of your professional career. When I worked on the ambulance before, when I was going to nursing school, I had a couple calls that were SIDS babies and that was traumatic. Like I'd heard about that. I, I think there's, you know, people talk about SIDS. They talk about babies dying when they get home, but I honestly never thought about babies dying in utero. That was never part of like, I never heard that in discussion with family members. I never had experienced that with anybody. So when I came to OB and my first my first mom that I helped take care of, her baby it was actually had a lot of anomalies and she knew it wasn't going to survive outside. So she planned and outside her uterus and she planned an induction and the baby came out alive, but it had multiple anomalies and sweet little baby was gasping. And I, it was so traumatic to me. I realized at a point that I was crying so hard and I looked over at dad and he was crying so hard. And I realized mom wasn't crying because she felt like she needed to support us. And I was, you know, I mean, this has been 18 years ago and I still get emotional about it because I just, I remember thinking like I felt so inequipped to take care of them because I was like, I have no idea what to do. Like I didn't ever think this would happen. So, and now I really feel like taking care of these patients, taking care of a Katie and Brian, these are the people that I will remember their deliveries forever. And they are, they're such a real connection that happens with these and I don't know if you guys felt that way with your staff that took care of you, what we can give to them and provide to these patients as far as memories and keepsakes and providing a, you know, a warm environment and allowing them to say their hellos and goodbyes is so important. When a family comes in, Erin, who has witnessed a stillbirth, what are some of the support resources or what, what do we have to offer? Here at Enlo, we have a program that's called Forever Loved, and one of our nurses named it because these babies are forever loved for all of us. I think one of the parts, too, and not that parents need to think about that, but this is a really hard thing for staff, too. I mean, even the doctors, the nurses, I mean, I know I go home and I just can't wait to hug my kids, and they always know, okay, mom's had a bad day at work, and usually it's not, you know, it's a, it's because there's been not a good outcome, and So we have a program called Forever Loved, and what we do is we work on educating all of our staff on just how to care for a bereaved family and how to do keepsake items, how to do handprints and footprints. And we want to try to give those parents everything they can tangible to take home because they don't get to take their baby home. We work on resources for that, and then we also... And we go down to the ER, if we get called down to the ER and we created these little purple bags and it was from an ER nurse that had a miscarriage in the ER. And it's just a little bag with a little tiny velvet blanket and candle thing that's October 15th is National Day of Remembrance. And so it has a little thing in there about, you know, remembering your baby and lighting a candle at seven o'clock on October 15th. And then anybody that's came into our unit, I follow up with them in about one to two weeks and just make sure that you know, that they're doing okay physically, um, that they've made their appointments with their doctor emotionally, that, you know, where they're at and giving them resources. If the baby went to a funeral home, making sure that they've, you know, that's all, if they need any help with that. We send out mail letters throughout the year periodically just for that first year. And 
they're just about different kind of stages of grieving that are happening and the holidays, just different little things. That's like what our program is here. So Katie and Brian, you are holding Wesley for the first time you met him. So what happens? So we spent on and off six hours, a total of six hours with him until we both said our goodbyes to him and left the hospital. In that time, the staff, they did the handprints, the footprints, the hair clippings. We did some pictures. Would you mind telling us a little bit what Wesley looked like? I know you mentioned his red lips, but I didn't realize he had hair. He did. So we have two redheads at home and Wesley's hair was dark. It was dark. It was straight on top, which I'm fascinated that he had hair because both girls did not at the time of delivery. So it was dark. Maybe it would have turned. Who knows? Then he was a little peanut, just like the girls. He resembled them. And I think that's sweet. I often tell them that that their brother looked like them. We both took our time separately to say our goodbyes. So at at time of leaving, we we talk a lot about this, but you know, they, they want to come in with the, the chair and we'll rule you out. And I was like, no, you're not going to roll me out. I don't have a baby to put on my lap and all the things. So I grabbed my, my box that they gave me and I walked out and, you know, Aaron talked a lot about just the staff and you remember who the staff is. You remember your patients, Aaron, and... And I remember that I wanted to see the gal who had first put the Doppler on. And I'm not kidding you. They didn't call her. I didn't even tell anyone. And I'm walking down the hall and she is right by triage. And we meet right there in the hall and we just hug. And she said she was sorry. And and uh, that was it. We walked out. We went home. And you went home to a house full of people with the girls, people providing food and drinks and and all the baby stuff set up and um, healing also physically and a very foggy, very foggy. Did your girls get to come into the hospital? And- no, it was COVID time. So we had Katie's sister. Luckily, Katie had asked her sister if she would come along with us for the delivery and she did. So she was there to take pictures for us and we have some very good memories through those pictures that she was able to take. But yeah, unfortunately, none of our family got to meet Wesley other than his aunt. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. It is tough. I just wonder, you know, people, it's even taking pictures when you talk to parents, you know, when they kind of go into the process and when baby's born, you know, we'll put baby right on you if you want, or we'll take mm-hmm. baby over to the warmer. Or I think as a patient, it's really hard to make any decisions. Like you just don't know what to expect. You mm-hmm. don't know. So kind of guiding them through gingerly and what we've seen that helps parents through the process. And I think that one thing that I've learned through my career in doing this is bringing siblings in and letting families come and say their goodbye to. I think it's really important. We've had families come in with, you know, their five kids and just each of them get to hold the baby and say their goodbyes. And I think that's an important part, but some people that's scary and they're, you know, afraid that it's going to scare them because, you know, like you said, Wesley's lips were really red and, you know, his skin was starting to change colors. And But I feel like it's just an important part. And if we can, 
you know, tried to do that. I, I don't know how you guys would have felt if they were able to come in if it wasn't COVID time. I think about that. It's tough because I, we weren't given the option. I, I don't know. I think it's because it's like one of those things I'm speechless. Like I, how do you do it? And so Aaron, having a resource and a program like you and your staff, I mean, to help guide those and talk about what the bigger picture and what it might look like a year from now when a mom is so foggy, so important that, that you're there. There's a really good little video. It's super old, but if you can find it and it's called what children say It's about death and children and having stillborns and having what their siblings, how their perception of it was. And, you know, they talk about the scariness of what, you know, they think their baby looked like a monster and that's why it didn't live. I mean, there's so many things in their little minds that they create. And so, and it's, it's been some of the most precious times when a sibling came in and, you know, held it, their little brother or sister and they, you know, may look very dysmorphic and, mm. you know, but they look at their little hands or their little feet or their little, and they just normalize it. And I just, I think it's an important part. Yeah. But it's it, scary. Right. Right. Even for us, it was scary. Even for us. Yeah. 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 But something I'll take a minute. Um, I actually brought it here is I created like a photo album yeah. of all my memories with what, like not all, but a lot of memories with Wesley. So starting on like the first page is like the day we found out I was pregnant with him. And then it's like every month after that. And then it's in the hospital room and, and the girls so want to go special. through it all the time. Yeah. And then toward the end, toward the end is notes. So we received a lot of items after our family did. I did. So, yeah. So it starts with like just him and then in the hospital room delivering. That's so special. That is something. And to have your girls have that forever is so special. Yeah. And then the flowers that came in just after we we took pictures of all the, the floral arrangements all of the people would just drop items off for my girls. I mean, let me tell you, when they start thinking about your girls, it really tugs at a mama's heart. You know, it's one thing to bring something for us. But so just took pictures of everything. So many amazing things. And I just want the girls to remember that, you know, and have those memories. So much of love. Yeah. He was so loved and they're so loved. Yeah. That was really cool. That's really special. Thank you. I think that was a good thing you said too, when you went home, one thing that, and you guys, I would love your input on this. One of the things that people always ask when they're at the hospital and they get the diagnosis and there's a grandma or grandpa here or a sister or uh, the mom. And they always say, what, you know, what can I do? And I always try to talk to them outside of the room and just say, this is one thing that I've just heard from a lot of parents is please, please don't let anybody go home and take down the nursery. Don't let anybody go home and take away the baby stuff because they're afraid the parents are going to go home to that and it's going to be traumatic. What we've heard is that when that does happen, it's even more traumatic because they go home to an empty room or an empty, their rocker's gone or um, they try to move things. And you guys said you went home to a full house of lots of people. And what would you feel about that? Yeah, I think someone wanted to help and do that, a family friend and the wife of this individual and some other gals were like, no. Like, let's leave that up. But I think to a man, it's like, let's fix this. Let's, exactly. you know, they want to help and they want to do. 
but I thought of it when I went home. That's what I thought of. I was like, oh my goodness, this stuff is still up. I just want it out of here. But then it was months mm-hmm. till I till we took it down. I'm so glad it stayed up. I was going to say, we had the crib up for probably six months after. I know Katie spent countless hours in the nursery afterward reading and just processing. So yeah. I mean, just having that space still set up, I think for us or for her especially was was very helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a healthy grieving process, right? I mean, I think people want to go do things and fix things and, you know, take it away. And it's like, you can't take away. And I, I think that's why I'm so grateful doing even a podcast like this or just getting education out, you know, that allow people to talk about people when they get pregnant, don't want to have that fear their whole pregnancy, right? Like we, we don't want to take the joy of the pregnancy away, but we also the education needs to be out there that this does happen. And when this does happen, how can we support these people and what can we do to help moms and dads through this? So I I think it's really important. That's beautiful, Erin. Something that me and Katie did talk about was there's this thing where people in their well-intended self to fix something so that they feel like if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. What Erin shares and resonates is that it doesn't prevent or stop what has already happened that it's always there and it's always present. Would you share a little more on that? Yeah. So yeah, we kind of talked about just people not wanting to bring up the loss, right? Cause they're, maybe they're scared or they don't want to bring something up and then have an emotion strike for you. But what I've always say, I'm always thinking about him. I'm always mm-hmm. thinking of my girls. Mm-hmm. I'm always thinking of Wesley. So while it might be hard and while it might trigger something inside, but that, that's just part of the grief. And that's part of our journey that unfortunately we have to walk through. But I'd rather, we would rather have people bring it up than not. Well, I think it's comforting too when people bring it up because you know that they're thinking about it. They're thinking that, hey, you know what? You do have another child. He may not be here, but they're acknowledging that there is this part of you that you lost. So them talking about it at least makes you feel like, hey, they know that this happened and they are respectful and they know that you love this person. Yeah. And it doesn't make you feel so alone and lonely inside because that we are always thinking of it. So maybe so there's something important. on, yeah, maybe there's something on my heart that I really want to share with someone, but how do you bring that up? But if someone asks me how I'm doing, then maybe I'm, they're creating this space that I can share something on my heart, whether it's something sad or whether it's a sweet memory. Gosh, I think you guys, what you've said is so important because, you know, just being present and being a listener and being able to allow you guys a safe space and bringing up Wesley is so important. And, you know, like you said, it might be a time that you're, he's not on the forefront of your mind, but he's always right there. So being able to talk about him. Another important thing that when I follow up with patients, I always really try to touch on, and I, and I talk to the moms about this. I ask them if they have a a good friend, if dad has a good friend or partner, whoever it is, if they have, you know, a good friend or somebody they can, you know, that can call them and check in on them. I feel like one of the things that happens a lot is all the tension goes to mom and dad goes back to work or gets back in that kind of fixing mode. And I think sometimes dad's grief gets kind of pushed to the side and no one actually takes the time to say, how are you? And I think dad and Brian, you can touch on this, but I think dads are worried about trying to protect mom's feelings. So if mom's having a good day they and they maybe are not having a good day, they don't want to bring it up because 
they think it's going to bring her down. So I always ask them, do you just have somebody that can check in with him and just say, hey, how are you? And, you know, um, I think I think it's important. Yeah, I did have those a couple of those people, not that I set them up or anybody set them up, but that would just randomly reach out and check in. And it was very thoughtful and it did help. It is interesting, the male perspective of all this, at least my perspective, just because I didn't experience anything. I don't have any physical memories other than the brief time that I held Wesley at the end there. So it's so weird. And it's even so like, different. yes, yes, yeah, different. Watching Katie process it has been different, you know, than what I process. And so, and that's just grief in general, but I don't know. It's, it is interesting, but it was nice in those little brief moments when somebody would reach out and say, how, Hey, how are you doing? And that's why I think people bringing it up and acknowledging that something had happened is very helpful because parents love talking about their kids. They love sharing with people and, and just talking about how great their kids are. You know, that's one of the things you lose with stillbirth and, and even miscarriage is you don't have the ability to talk about them. For me, especially, unless people gives me the entry, because it's hard. Katie does a lot better job of it than just bringing Wesley up. I, if somebody doesn't say, hey, how are you doing in terms of like the kids or asking me, you know, and it's just interesting. I can't even explain it, but I'm not just going to insert into a conversation like Katie does. So, yeah, when people bring it up on their own, it's it's very helpful. Well, and this was something Katie and I did talk about, too, is it's becoming more normal for women to be sharing that when someone asks about their family that we're becoming more open about, well, I've, I've had, you know, I have three kids or I have two kids and for one, I've lost one. And I think for us as a community, as a culture, I think it's also, you know, a new space for us to navigate in to be like, Oh, tell me about, do you want to talk about that? And it sounds like that would be exactly what we'd want to do is to talk about it and ask questions and learn about your son that you're equally proud of alongside your girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so perfectly said, Susie, because I think it also opens a door. And, and then when you do want to share that information, it allows it's amazing how many people have gone through the experience that have never been able to share it and having that safe space to do that. And that's a lot of moms, which was so weird to me for a long time, but would say that they would find we ran a support group here for a while and then it kind of fizzled out and we we haven't had an actual support group. And a lot of people find support on social media and there's a lot of Facebook, like if you just type in Facebook perinatal loss, there's a lot of private groups, there's a lot of, you know, group, public groups, but a lot of the private groups that are really safe places to share pictures and to share your story, moms would say, you know, it'd be two o'clock in the morning and I just couldn't sleep and I needed to know that I wasn't going crazy and what I was going through was normal. And then it would be able to talk to another mom who's gone through it and be able to say, you're right where you need to be. This is, this is normal. Being able to talk about Wesley when you want to is great because it allows other moms to be able to be vulnerable and share their story too. So you guys share about Wesley's whispers because this, I think, is also such a magical part of this journey that, that your family experiences. And I think a lot of families would relate to. So Monday after I had him, which was the next day, you know, I had had it set in my mind to go to the funeral home. But with COVID restrictions, they would not physically allow us to go in. And that was very difficult because I feel like I needed to be somewhere and to do something. So... 
Brian had informed me that we would be doing it from home that afternoon. My kids were at the park with family and friends. And I said, I just need to get out of here. I need to leave the house for a few minutes. So we ended up at a very quiet Mexican restaurant, had some margaritas and some tacos, and then decided to go back later that night and bring all of our family and friends. And we cried, we shared, but we were all together. And it was just such a beautiful moment. But it was before the restaurant that I was on the phone with a woman and I was in my bedroom and I looked outside, we out, we overlooked a wetland area and we have a deck and I just saw some butterflies flying by. And, you know, I hadn't really thought anything of it other than I, I know like when people lose people, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll think of a, they'll see a, a ladybug and they'll think of that, that person or a hummingbird. And it just came to me and it clicked and it said butterflies, like, like I'm going to send you butterflies. So my girls, my husband, we all know that when we see butterflies, it's, it was sent for Wesley. And this summer we have one living back there and it's beautiful to look at. So, you know, after Wesley, I woke up every morning and I would ask God two things. I would say, God, what's next? And send me a Wesley whisper. So I would look for those two things every day. And sometimes they would be sent to me or answered and sometimes it wouldn't. But every day I was consistent with that because I feel like if this is going to happen, what is next for our family? And what is it? What does our new family look like? Because we're not who we were. I'm not who I was. And our family is forever changed. So just waiting for that and waiting for those butterflies, for those signs. It's a beautiful thing when you're in pain and grief and a butterfly just flies right in front of you. It's like your mind can just instantly change, you know? So beautiful. Every time I see a butterfly now, I'm going to think of Wesley. Aww. <laughs> Love it, Aaron. <laughs> I think of him too. I've already seen a few. Mm. I think he was preparing me for yeah. this podcast. I think so. Yeah. So tell us more about why you decided to, to join the podcast. Well, t- just to be like a quick answer would be because we say yes. If someone asks us to do something with Wesley, we have just said yes until the door closes. And there have there have been doors that have closed after we've said yes to things. But we were invited back by Enlo Medical Center to to share. And we said yes. And we just kind of kept going with it. We feel like I think there's a few things to one share a story, share about Wesley, our son, who is not here, unfortunately to hopefully bring some hope to people that it does get easier and to bring awareness of stillbirth. Also to share a little bit about our foundation. Yeah. So I can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Is that okay? Of course. Okay. Of course. So I'm going to let my husband take it over from here. One of the things that you start to realize when you go through an experience like we did, or there are tools and resources that may be available at hospitals and they may not be. So one of those things is it's called a, a cuddle cot and we had actually seen it on a TV show called New Amsterdam probably about a year before everything happened with Wesley and hadn't thought about it since then. And then when shortly after Katie had found out that there was no heartbeat, she texted her cousin up in Alaska who was a labor and delivery nurse and she said the cousin said ask for the cooling bed. And so 
while we were going through the delivery process, we had asked the nurses and the, and the doctors, Hey, do you guys have a cooling bed? I think it's, I don't know if we knew the name of it then or not, but we had asked about it and they, they looked at us like they didn't know what we were talking about. And so we just moved on and that was that during our experience. So then shortly after we got home, I think it was three days after I had started researching, you know, what is this cooling bed and how much are they? Can we donate them? And so we stumbled across Cuddlecot and their website and we decided, you know what, we're going to donate one to the hospital that we delivered at. And so we, we did that process and then, and then we started to really think, okay, if our hospital didn't have one, which is a very big hospital, if they didn't have one, then there's probably other hospitals that don't have them. And so we decided, we decided to start the process of establishing a foundation with our main goal of being providing cuddle cots to local hospitals. One a year, one cuddle cot a year in yeah, honor of Wesley was our goal. That was our goal. So we finally got all the paperwork done and everything set in motion. And we did a fundraiser earlier this year in April on Wesley's one year mark. And we raised enough money to be able to donate five cuddle cots this year. We had donated one last year that we did on Wesley's six month mark. And one of the hospital's or medical centers that we donated to was Enlo. They did not have one prior to us donating it. <laughs> it's been a great experience for us thus far. It's one of those unfortunate realities is that people are going to go through this. As Susie said earlier, there's 24,000 stillbirths a year on average. From what I've researched, there's the same number of infants that die within the first year of life annually in the United States. And so what the Cuddlecot does is it's a cooling bed for a a body that after they've deceased, they're able to be put into the bed and kept cool so their body doesn't decompose or at least slows down the decomposition rate and allows families to spend time with their child, say their goodbyes, do things that we didn't necessarily weren't able to be done um, because we didn't have one available to us. And it kind of brings in that the question earlier of would we have had family come in? Would we have had our kids come in? And it allows parents to be able to make that decision while the baby or the child is still in a in good condition from a decomposition standpoint. It basically just gives them the gift of time. Exactly. And that's what we want to offer hospitals to offer patients is giving them the option to have more time. So yeah, the question was asked earlier, would we have had our kids come in if it wasn't COVID? Looking back on it, I probably would have. I would have had as many people as wanted to see Wesley come in and, and just get that real memory of him versus, you know, pictures and things like that. That's what we feel the cuddle cot will allow people to do. Because like I said, it's unfortunate, but it does happen and it's going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. So having these in hospitals around us and allowing these families the time is, is what we wanted to set up a foundation for. That is so incredible. I can speak for Enlo, for our department. We're very grateful that you guys chose us as one of your hospitals. I think, like you said, Brian, it's the fact knowing that this is still going to happen is awful because we wish it just would never happen. But I will tell you, it will be utilized. And when it is utilized, we will definitely will be in Wesley's memory. And um, it's a very, a lot of families try to find something to do and, you know, doing the foundation. Um, there's another mom, Cooper Mendoka Foundation, that she was going to raise money for COT also. And so I think it's just finding that a lot of parents want to do something, they need to do something. We've had a lot of people donate, they were gonna have a baby shower and their baby shower, people bring stuff for memorials and you know that they can give to other grieving families. And we've had really neat baskets made that way. And so I just think whatever ways people can help 
get through this process. And I also love, Katie, what you said about that it does get easier, that there is a light. And I think that's such an important thing for moms and dads to know that this heaviness does get easier. I don't think it ever goes away. I know one of the questions that Susie asked was um, about how long is grief and how long does this process? And I don't think there's any time on it. Mm -hmm. I think that everybody's grieving process is so unique, but it is reassuring to say that it does get easier, that it does it does get less heavy. If that's the right way to say that. Yeah. I think your guys' foundation is amazing and awesome. And I, I'm very grateful we were one of your recipients. Thank you, Erin. We uh, now have, I think, bigger plans for it. So we're excited to kind of talk to our board of directors to see what that is going to look like. So we may even be in touch some more, Erin. Yeah, I would love it. Anything. Okay. Anything I can do to, yes. Good. <laughs> Here you got to prove all the answers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Great. <laughs> so we're about ready to wrap it up, but Katie and Brian, what would you like to say to families who've gone through a stillbirth delivery or a miscarriage recently? I think what I would say is I'm sorry. I know that there's not, no one can do anything to bring your baby back or to change the outcome, accept the help, do the hard stuff, do the really hard stuff. Because I think that just makes it easier down the road to include them in your family and in your life. I really put myself out there. So just putting yourself out there. Yeah. And I think just keeping the memory alive and, and not pushing it to the side. And I know I remember like the first thing that I thought when I was in triage with Katie after I got there was, how do we get this over with? You know, just like that was where I went. But I'm so glad that's not how I've stayed. We've kept Wesley alive in our memories and what we were just trying to help other families that have gone through the same thing and not just pushing it aside and trying to avoid it and just make sure that you go through the process. You stay all in with your partner and just, yeah, it's, it's going to be a process, but it, it like he said, it doesn't get easier as you go. You just got to take every step forward. You're going to take some steps back, but keep stepping forward. I think we jumped into some therapy together. And then after like eight months, I think he kind of dwindled off. And then now I go on my own periodically. We've done, I've done grief counseling by myself. I've done, and we've, then we've both done a grief share through our church. But all of that has been a, a helpful in this process. Erin, is there anything you'd like to add? I don't think I could have said anything better than them. I mean, Brian said a lot of people come in and just want this over with. And I think taking that time and like Katie said, just doing the hard stuff, you know, it's, it's hard to think of the thought of holding your baby and taking pictures and making memories. And I think it's just, I think for medical staff and I, I tell our nurses and our staff that it's okay to be honest and humble with the parents and it's okay to cry in front of them. It's okay to show your emotions. I think the most challenging part of caring for a stillbirth family is being able to be quiet and being able to be present and being able to allow them to go through the emotions because when somebody's hurting so deeply, you want to fix it. You want to offer them the Kleenex. You want to, but just to sit there and be present is, is hard. Yeah. Erin, something that I've kind of done a few times now is with the hospital staff is I've brought them, you know, cookies or donuts and coffee because I, I feel as 
a mom, I left my son there. And while I know he's not there anymore, we, and we spoke on this earlier, but we have such a connection and a tie to the staff and they're also grieving, right? And my doctor's also grieving. And I've met up with her a few times and she came and spoke at our fundraiser. So as much as it is, it's our loss, but there's a lot of people involved and that's been really helpful for me. I think it's important for our girls too. Yeah. Cause it's just those constant memory, you know, those constant things yeah. that we can do yeah. because of Wesley. Mm. Yeah. So keeping him involved. Yeah. Celebrating him. Yeah. I love that so much. Can we oh, share absolutely. the name of our foundation? Yes. Oh my gosh, please. Thank you. This has been so great too, by the way. So thank you so much for all of this. Our foundation name is Born Sleeping Foundation. We have a website up, bornsleepingfoundation.org. And we would love it if anyone would love to share a story or connect with us. I know I connected with other moms during the early days of of, of my loss with Wesley. And it was just so helpful to have them. But please, we just want people to contact us or if you're a hospital listening listening in and you need a cattle cat call us i love that i love that thank too. you yeah we're all in this together yeah <laughs> so thank you everyone so much for being here i am so grateful for you sharing this information and sharing your hard story but also celebrating wesley with us and for any family who is who listens i'm sure that it's going to feel really great to have a place to go and listen and feel like there's somebody who's who can understand. And thank you, Erin, so much for joining us and yeah, sharing about all the great guys. things. And thanks for starting the program. I mean, thanks for being a wonderful nurse over there in OB and taking care of all of our families. Thank you all for being here. And thanks to Katie and Brian and their family for sharing this experience with us. I know it has helped many families. If you or a loved one is struggling, please reach out to some of the resources mentioned today or talk to your provider. Tell us what matters to you. Shoot us an email at health.matters at inlo.org. Let us know your thoughts about our podcast and what you want us to explore. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what you heard today, please give us a thumbs up, subscribe, and share. The story you shared just may save a life. Thanks again for getting real with us today and listening to Health Matters.